Pray with me. Lord, help. Help me not to speak plausible words of human wisdom, but words given by your spirit. That we may not just leave here with more rhetoric for the kingdom, but power to live it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a reason why I said help is because um, when I got home from Synod yesterday, I discovered uh, that I prepared the wrong sermon. I, oh, am I not on? I'm on. I'm on. I'm not on. I'm on here, but I'm not on here. That's what Bill's telling me. Um, so I, I prepared for what was November 6th, the, the elections for uh, November 6th in the prayer book. And today we had chosen the All Saints elections. How beautiful God's sense of humor is. Because here we hear this, this story from Revelation where uh, the question is asked, who are these dressed in white? And you know who they are. They're there before the throne. They're the ones who have been saved and redeemed. It's a future picture. It's a beatific vision of what we're all to receive and be a part of. <coughs> I love when you come into a cathedral or a church or a, a space of worship and you notice the way the front is ordained, uh, uh, adorned and set aside for, for the purposes of drawing our attention to the cross and, and through which we, we don't believe that it stops here. But much of our faith, much of our action stops here. We stop at the object uh, to which we pray. And we, we pray to Jesus or we pray to the Father because we're limited by our words. We're limited by our desires we're limited by our whining, right? We, we, we have the tendency to whine about the things, and that's what, when God gets our attention, is when we want to whine about what's there, but really those are supposed to be objects that we look through. Stained glass, for the purposes in most cathedrals, were there so that we could look through them into heaven because we knew that that's what we are connected to, the table, the altar, the space, you know, at long used to bother me when they made the shift from the high altar being against the wall to it being out with the people. It made more sense for it being out with the people. Um, Cranmer himself, if you follow the, the, the way that the prayer book was designed, the altar itself was moving slowly away from the wall into the midst of the people. The way he was designing liturgy, it, it needed to be a corporate event. But it needed also to be a transcendent event. And that was what was hard for our more Anglo-Catholic uh, brethren to, to deal with because the altar was against the eastern wall because it was supposed to be the end of the table. It was supposed to be the end of the banquet table in which we are joining with every Sunday, every time we corporately gather, we join with the saints and the angels who are already at the work that we're going to do for eternity. And it's going to be fun. It's going to be so much fun to be in the presence of God. So it was rather strange as I thought about these things last night and I'm looking at the scriptures today and uh, the opening words were, from uh, the testament that I was reading in the Old Testament, or 
Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in, in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he'll stand upon the earth. Now, I said that without citing the quote because many of us have heard those words but don't necessarily put them in the context of who wrote them. Anybody know who wrote them? Job. Under the awful circumstances of having everything stripped away, Job writes these words, Oh, if this were only written down. Because I know that my Redeemer lives. That's really a hard place for all of us. We've lost people that we love. We we've, know what brokenness is. We know what it's like to, to, in good and bad economies, wrestle with having nothing. And underneath all of that, when everything else is washed away, we have to be able to say, I know in my knower that my Redeemer lives. I know it. And I will stand with him on that last day. And after my skin is all gone, Job says, after it's been destroyed, actually the Hebrew said, really refers to after the layers of skin have rotted away, yet in my flesh I will see God. Theologians and commentators have, have pondered what this really means. I mean, how can he just say, after everything's gone, how in, how in the flesh will you see God? And, you know, the quick assumption is that, well, in the resurrection body, but the language uh, is a little bit amorphous here. It's, it's not really sure. Is, is he talking about the spiritual body? Is he talking about a time between which the saints would have to wait for the resurrection to happen because Christ hasn't come yet? And you and I having the ability, having the hindsight to be able to look back through time and through history, recognize that we're in this middle place, the already and the not yet. And when we get to heaven, it'll be as if God took the chronological time that we understand and stood it right on end so that the historical time frame that we think is back then and out there is right here. It's as if it already happened. And so Job is speaking in a language that is connected to a, a heavenly time frame, not an earthly time frame. And he says, I will see it for myself. My eyes will behold him and not another. What a beautiful picture. Now, there's a contrast here because here Job is suffering. He's, I mean, he's suffering at a level that we... We uh, think, you know, we don't want people to be out for five weeks with not being able to breathe. We don't want, you know, uh, or five, we don't want people to have, have to suffer and be on respirators with COVID. We don't want um, all of the things that we, we see coming against the people of, of God. And yet in the midst of that, there's an underpinning. There's a foundation that says, God is better than any of this. So, in my readings this morning, <laughs> I'm reading this and I, I uh, am, am thinking of young Sheldon and the phrase, huzzah, 
because in the Hebrew, the, the uh, word to see is hazah. <laughs> and he's always saying hazah in the, the uh, television show, like a revelation, hazah, you know. And that's exactly what Job had. He, he was able to say, I can see, I can huzzah this thing before me, this beauty of God's presence, and I know that is in my flesh because God has something bigger and better and uh, more lasting for me. So as I was looking at the, the New Testament lesson for today, uh, as it's scheduled, not for all saints, today our New Testament lesson, our gospel reading was uh, the Beatitudes. What a beautiful picture. I mean, that's, that's what we long for. That's what we fight for. That's what we struggle after when we see an election coming and we say, how do we pray? How do we know that the, the hand of the Lord is, is, is with us? Has he left us or forgotten us? And then we hear, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek because their inheritance is the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They'll be satisfied. Merciful will receive mercy. The pure in heart will see God. Peacemakers shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of God. You and I know that there is great persecution going on uh, for the tenets of our faith in our culture right now. And we're so polarized because in politics we decide to take sides. But when you look at the biblical value of what God says uh, as he's being asked, are you for us or against us? His response is, neither. I'm for me. I'm for the kingdom. And as we have kingdom values, we look at the Beatitudes and we think God's values are higher and deeper. And so as I was looking at the, what is scheduled for today's lesson, it is this um, gospel lesson where uh, the Sadducees had come to Jesus in, um, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke ch chapter 20. And they denied that there is a resurrection, and they were asking him a question to try to corner him. You know, when, when you don't want to know spiritual things that are, are going to confront the humanity in you, why not confront the spiritual person with things that they can't answer to see how stupid they look or make them look stupid so you are off the hook? And they say, teacher, Moses write, writes for us that if a man dies having a wife uh, but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. It's, it's in the scriptures. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. The second and the third took her, and likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will this woman be? And Jesus says, who cares? 
He knew they were serious when they asked the question, but he, he throws it back at them and he says, is this really the issue? Is this what you want to know? Is this what you're struggling with? Because the Sadducees themselves denied all supernatural occurrences, including the resurrection, and their question was there to, to pin Jesus down. Jesus answers them in this interesting way. He says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who, consider, are, who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor will be given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, he, where, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live in him. He's pointing out that the whole point of the resurrection is to be alive in Christ, to be renewed, to be restored, and the restoration is not to a marriage or to any other institution. I mean, we want to see the people that we love, and we pray if our spouses go before us into heaven that one day we'll get to see them face to face. But the fact of the matter is we'll be so caught up in our focus on Christ that the marriage is not the point for why we're going to heaven. The family is not the point. The relatives, the great, 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 greats. You know, we always think, oh, I can't wait to see Moses. I'm going to ask him a question or two, you know. What was he thinking when he smashed those Ten Commandments the first time? You know, we have all these fleshly thoughts, but the reality is all of that stuff gets put into heavenly perspective when we allow it to. Don't know if you know this. Fun facts. This is called Christian fun facts, all right? At the Nicene Council, when the, the Nicene Creed was made, an important church meeting in the fourth century that it was, of the 318 delegates that were attending, fewer than 12 had not lost an eye or lost a hand, or did not limp on a leg lamed by torture for being a Christian. All but 12 out of the 318 delegates. They were condemned because of their Christianity, but they had life in Christ because it doesn't matter whether they were lame, they were redeemed. And Job, in the midst of his pain and his suffering, Job, in the midst of his brokenness and anger to God. It's okay to be angry with God, right? Psalm 13 gives a good description. David's just like, why, Lord? Why have you left me so that my enemies triumph over me? Why, in the midst of all of this, would you call me to continue to lead your people? Why? But but I know that you are steadfast. David knew the bottom line. Job knew the bottom line. And oddly enough, his friends that's, that gathered around him, they all, by the information that they had at the time, counseled him otherwise. 
counseled him in earthly, fleshly ways. But Job was saying, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I will stand on him, on, stand with him on the last day. I, with my own eyes, not the eyes of the flesh, but with my own eyes, which seemed really strange, because aren't those the eyes of the flesh? <laughs> but I, with my own eyes, will see what God is doing in that last day, because I will see him in his glory. So I don't think there's any mistake that the lessons that I planned for today were lessons about suffering and what it meant to, to be in this place of disconnection from the, the counsels and process of the world and marriage and uh, all of this loss. And, and yet when we ask Christ about what the, the purpose of it all is, he turns it upside down. That's the, the beauty of the Beatitudes. The, the, what we think of this world and what is righteous and beautiful and gracious and right, um, we, we, we think of people who are superlative, who stand out ab above the class. But all of those people that are described in the Beatitudes are people who are humbled and broken and lost and forgotten. And they are made righteous and blessed and inherited and given the grace that we all want in Christ. So what does God want to say through all of this? I think that we need perspective in our life. Um, I, I remember reading about Stephen Hawking. Uh, Stephen is an a the astrophysicist, and most of you know that he wasn't that great a believer. <laughs> and uh, he was at Cambridge um, University and probably uh, regarded as the most intellectual man on earth. He had uh, advanced in general theory of relativity farther than any person uh, since Einstein, and unfortunately, he was afflicted with Lou Gehrig's ALS. Uh, it, it eventually took his life, and as he was confined to a wheelchair for years, he could do little than just sit and think. Hawking had lost his ability to speak uh, and needed a computer to operate the tiniest movements uh, of his finger, fingertips to be able to communicate. In Omni Magazine, he is quoted as saying, he is too weak to write, or he is quoted as being too weak to write, feed himself, comb his hair, fix his glasses. All this must be done for him. Yet this most, this most dependent of all men has escaped the invalid status. His personality shines through the messy details of his existence. Hawking said that before he became ill, he had very little interest in his life. He called it pointless existing, resulting from sheer boredom. He drank too much, he did very little work, and when he learned that he had ALS, he was not expected to live for more than two years. The ultimate effect of that diagnosis beyond its initial shock was extremely positive. He came to have been happier in his life than he was ever before. How's that possible? Hawking gave the answer by saying, when one's expectations are reduced to zero, he said, one really appreciates everything that one does have. 
Stated another way, contentment in life is determined in part by what a person anticipates from it. To a man like Hawking, who, brought, uh, who, who thought he would soon die, everything takes on meaning. A sunrise, a walk in the park, the laughter of children. Suddenly, every small pleasure becomes precious. By contrast, those who believe life owes them a free ride are often discontent with its finest gifts. God wants us to have humble perspective. And sometimes he graces our lives with suffering that we might be able to see the beauty and the power and the gifting and the inheritance that are immovable to those that love him and serve him. You have an amazing future. In Christ, he has given you all things. So today, as we quasi-celebrate All Saints Day, I had the wrong text. As we look to the heavens and recognize that there are saints and angels in the host of heaven singing their their praise to the Lord, as the the psalm that was read by Carol this morning uh, reminds us uh, to just lean your heads back and praise the Lord. We all dance to an audience of one, but as we dance together, we have a corporate proclamation. Lord, you are worthy of our praise because all things under subjection to you are grace and beauty and power and love And one day together, we'll be with you, not worried about the concerns of this world or the matters of the flesh. But we'll be released to experience the fullness of your joy. My prayer is that you get a taste of that today. That as you come to the table to receive communion, you'll stand at the end of the table and recognize it runs right up into his presence. That we're not disconnected from the Lord simply because we live in the flesh. But we're getting ready, as my mom likes to say. She's not getting old. She's getting ready. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as uh, children who don't understand what it is to suffer. We don't like suffering. We don't like pain. Uh, we don't like brokenness. We, don't, we, we hate the divide and disconnect that this world brings us right now. As we approach a week of... of uh, more politics, we, we trust you, Lord, above all things. May our lives and our decisions and our uh, affections and our relationships all be a reflection of our relationship with you. That we mirror the son who gives us life. That the old man in us is dead and the new man is alive because Christ has died for each one of us that we might have a taste of that joy that we all know face to face. And may we bring honor and glory and majesty and power and beauty and all the things that you are back to you in praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.